Land, Water, Wildlife, a podcast produced by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, connecting you to nature. Thanks for listening to Land, Water, Wildlife. I'm Denise Blau, Communications and Marketing Manager for the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, better known as SCCF, which was founded in 1967. Our mission is to protect and care for Southwest Florida's coastal ecosystems, which we achieve through safeguarding shorebirds and sea turtles, monitoring water quality, environmental education, habitat management, community-led restoration, and environmental policy. Complementing our previous episode on the Everglades, our conversation today is about coastal resilience, a timely topic here in Florida as we get deeper and deeper into hurricane season. Specifically, we'll look at the Everglades through a resilience lens, as well as discuss coastal resilience's importance throughout Florida and beyond. We're joined today by our Environmental Policy Director, Matt DePaulis, who you'll recognize if you listen to our previous episode. New to the show is SCCF's Coastal Resilience Manager, Carrie Schumann. Welcome both. Can you please uh, enlighten our audience a bit on your background and what you do here at SCCF? Hey Denise, it's great to be back here on the podcast. As you said, I'm the Environmental Policy Director. I studied marine biology and to be an attorney, and I'm bringing my environmental policy expertise um, to SCCF to work at that nexus between science and policy to help protect and care for Southwest Florida's coastal ecosystems. So hi there, um, I'm Carrie. Um, so I have a PhD in interdisciplinary ecology with a focus on fisheries and aquatic sciences. I also have a master's in marine science and technology and um, what I do in my role is I routinely work with government and other partners like nonprofits on um, <clears throat> Sanibel and Captiva and beyond and even concerned citizens um, to really move our community closer to achieving resilience to impacts from climate change, including more intense hurricanes. Great, so excited to have you both here. Uh, you've got a wealth of environmental expertise. And uh, to start out, I would just want to ask you, Carrie, what is coastal resilience and why is it important? So when I talk about resilience, uh, coastal resilience uh, in the community, usually what I do is I ask people what they think about when they hear the word resilience, and that's to show people they already have a mental anchor to understand it. And usually people say um, it's the ability to bounce back, to respond to disturbance. And so that's really what coastal resilience is. Um, it really refers to the resilience of our natural and human systems to the effects of climate change. And it's especially important in Florida because we're particularly vulnerable to those impacts. So yes, heat alone is an issue that's been trending upwards for us, but that heat also inter um, underpins a lot of other issues like floodings, um, which we're also vulnerable to. Yeah, so I, I noticed you mentioned the environment many times in that explanation. Can you tell us more about why nature is a crucial component of coastal resilience? Oh, absolutely. So, um, right, as you mentioned, I talked about that balance with natural systems. <clears throat> and for a little context, so our island, Sanibel and Captiva, have really structured themselves to have a particular balance with nature. But in Southwest Florida, more generally, we know that nature is really, really key to why we live here. It's a really important economic 
driver. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we really care about supporting the thriving of nature. But on the flip side of the coin, a lot of these natural systems are very protective to us. So dunes and mangroves um, can really, for, for as an example, can really help slow down incoming wind and wave energy so that it doesn't, that energy doesn't penetrate as far inland. And when it does, it does with a lot less energy. Yeah, kind of, um, it's like a rubber band, the concept of coastal resilience. You know, you want to come back to where you were before and these natural systems help us do that. Um, that's a, a great explanation. Thank you. So we do see this term kind of being more used in the public, private, academic, and nonprofit sectors. Uh, they're really embracing this term, coastal resilience. Um, so, and we even have, you know, a coastal resilience manager at SCCF. So there's a lot of investment in this. Uh, what has driven this trend and where do you see it going? Yeah, so um, you're right in identifying that a lot of places now have people in roles focused on coastal resilience. And part of that is the fact that, you know, especially in response to climate change, it's not something that's going away and it's something that we have to deal with and respond to. Um, I think especially, you know, many places have uh, a, a lot that they need to focus on with regards to climate change, but again, a place like Florida has a lot to lose. Um, we both, you know, if we don't make a lot of thoughtful decisions on how we adapt, um, it means we could see a lot of damage to our infrastructure, a lot of damage to our natural systems. Um, it means that, you know, there are places that we might not be able to live in the future, but um, what it does mean is that we might be able to lengthen our time that we can live in those places if we're really thoughtful about how we do it. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that, um, you know, this has really gotten some traction. And again, this is going to be a sustained issue that we have to keep engaging with. So I see coastal resilience as being an important aspect for lots of organizations that continue to work in this space. Yeah, absolutely. With climate change going the way it has, uh, even this year alone, I don't think um, it's going to go away. So given what we just heard, Matt, uh, can you explain how these concepts connect to the Everglades, which, as we mentioned in our last episode, is one of Florida's most, if not the most important ecosystems? Sure. I think all of these concepts are pretty inherent in our understanding of the Everglades. Um, the Everglades essentially is this massive, untamed wetland system. And what we've seen through especially increasingly powerful storms, as Carrie mentioned, that these wetland systems provide huge amounts of storm attenuation for both wind and storm surge. So having more wetlands in Florida is, is beneficial to the areas around them, certainly. Um, there's also other tangible benefits that are directly provided by the Everglades. I think one of the major one is the drinking water source that it provides for millions and millions of people on the East Coast. The water passing through the Everglades is able to percolate down through the groundwater or through the bedrock into the groundwater and then is used as the drinking water source for Miami and surrounding areas. So when we're talking about sustainability and coastal resilience, um, having a water source for our population stretching into the future is absolutely necessary if we want to continue to be living in a place because um, humans need water just like everything else. So 
having this water source is very important. Also, in a less tangible way, um, but equally important, the Everglades function as a massive carbon sink. Uh, with all those plants growing, they're able to actually take carbon out of the atmosphere and hold it up within the system there. Um, the Everglades has been great at this for thousands of years. Uh, there were very dense peat mats at the bottom, or effectively what is a peat mat, at the bottom of the, the system on that limestone bedrock. And what we've been seeing as we've drained the Everglades is that that peat is then either burning or um, subsiding in such a way that that carbon is then freed up back into the atmosphere. So not only does, does the Everglades help coastal resilience, but the destruction of the Everglades actually speeds up some of these climate change, um, the climate change changes that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it protects us and and we shouldn't try to mess with it as uh, we have, as we discussed in the last episode, we have altered the Everglades quite a lot from how it naturally used to function. So I do encourage our audience to give that episode a listen if they want to learn a little more about that history. Uh, but we also discussed how restoring the Everglades uh, has been a decades-long, billions of dollars in cost project. Matt, would you be able to go over the past current and future restoration in the Everglades and why that's important for achieving resilience in the southern part of Florida? Yeah, as you mentioned, that previous episode we did is a great resource to go back and get a really deep dive into the system and an understanding of what we've done to it. Really quickly, um, condensing a couple hundred years of history into a few sentences, our problems with the Everglades basically started when people saw it as land that wasn't being put to a beneficial use yet. And their approach to that was to start draining and ditching the Everglades, get the water off the land, and open that up for agriculture. Throughout a series of attempts at this, they succeeded in establishing the Everglades agriculture area. Um, a lot of homes went into these areas, and throughout this time, though, we started to realize what we had lost throughout this process. And that's when the um, Comprehensive Everglade Restoration Project was started or SERP as we call it, um, which was signed in 2000. This is a series of projects that aims at restoring flows to the Everglades. And in order to be able to restore flows to the Everglades, we have to be able to get a handle on the quantity, quality, timing, and distribution of the water. So the SERP projects are a series of Army Corps and state-run projects that will hold the water in large storage reservoirs, clean the water through STAs and other treatment options, and eventually be able to send that water down south into the Everglades to restore it at the times when it, the Everglades needs to remain hydrated, namely in the dry season. Um, right now, we're not able to do that because there is a legal limit of 10 parts per billion of phosphorus that needs to be met in the water before it's able to be released in the Everglades. And Lake Okeechobee, which is the source of the Everglades water, is far too polluted for us to do that. So right now we're in the midst of completing these projects. There's groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings seemingly every month and we're making great progress in order to be able to restore those flows. And all of these flows, once they're restored, will serve to strengthen the Everglades and that will bring about all those benefits that we talked about uh, earlier, whether it's the uh, resilient, the physical resilience of the mangrove fringe and the wetland or uh, the water source or the carbon sequestration, all of these um, components will be increased once we have the flows restored. 
Yeah, thank you for that uh, brief overview. It's amazing to see how much more we learn and do every year to try and get the Everglades back to the way they used to naturally be. And um, backing up a little bit, uh, here in Southwest Florida, a lot of us experienced a pretty intense hurricane uh, almost one year ago, Hurricane Ian. When it made landfall on an island off the coast of Florida, the storm was at the cusp of being a Category 5 hurricane with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. It was the third costliest hurricane in the U.S. and the deadliest hurricane in Florida since 1935, taking 150 lives in the state. And a lot of that was through storm surge and flooding. Uh, Carrie, how do you think this event has changed the narrative on coastal resilience in Florida, if at all? So, um, I definitely think it's changed the narrative, um, absolutely. Um, but some of that might depend on scale. Um, so, I think about um, the fact that the, so the state, kind of prior to this past hurricane season, had already been engaging in this, in this space. Um, you know, they've passed um, <clears throat> legislation that set up a statewide plan that addresses flooding vulnerabilities um, from sea level rise and storm surge. Uh, there is something called the Resilient Florida Program, which gives money for different uh, parts of that process, like completing vulnerability assessments, and it, uh, that program also helps fund projects to address those vul vulnerabilities. So the state was already engaging, and I think this just reiterates for them how important this is. But if you think about the everyday person, I think this has really changed the narrative for them. Um, you know, a lot of people's engagement with climate change has to do with, you know, how sort of in your face those impacts are and how urgent they seem. And we have some effects, things like sea level rise, which are kind of unfold more gradually. And those, um, you know, they're not always as obvious to people. They take time to happen. And so it's sort of, you can say, oh, that's going to happen to us in the future. But something like the Hurricane Ian, um, you know, it's an immediate, uh, it's, it's very obvious how much it's impact us. And the interesting thing about Hurricane Ian is it really had the hallmarks of how climate change has been and will continue to change hurricanes over time. So just to give you examples of what that is. So we are, have been seeing and will expect to see a higher proportion of intense hurricanes during, that's cat three and above during any given season. We saw Hurricane Ian undergo something called rapid intensification, which is where you suddenly see an increase in wind speed very quickly over a 24 hour period. And then the outcomes that you expect start to look very different. Um, and there's evidence that um, these big storms, these um, intense storms are moving more slowly and taking longer to decay over land. So that means you have these big hurricanes that are slow moving, they stop over land and have um, a lot of time to really expose those areas to that wind and wave energy. You know, we saw people expecting something like Charlie, um, which was their sort of frame of reference, but they got a very different storm. And what that's done is catalyze this sense of urgency and a lot of energy and desire to, to really work on this issue, and we're really trying to take advantage of that right now. So here's the big question, Carrie. What are our biggest risks if we don't achieve coastal resilience? Well, I think the hard part is that the nature of climate change is that the decisions really are going to be made for us if we don't take action. So that's, you know, that hearkening back to that question about why people have been hiring people to work in this space. 
it's because um, you know we really want to be proactive in our response and so I think about that from kind of two standpoints the first is that um, you know this doesn't always get talked about enough across the state but we need to mitigate we need to really address climate change at its source and not just treat its symptoms partially because that will let us be more successful when we adapt and we try and respond to its impacts um, if we're able to thoughtfully adapt, um, which includes thinking about how we build, how we incorporate natural protection, what we also often call nature-based solutions, and kind of connecting that to the Everglades. The Everglades really is the ultimate nature-based solution for Florida. Um, but that means we may be able to lessen damage to our infrastructure, get our human and natural communities up and running sooner after intense events. But if we don't engage uh, around this resilience, um, you know, we have a lot to lose and a lot, uh, you know, a lot of risks. Absolutely. And it all comes down to protecting our uh, natural systems, our environment. They do so much to protect us. And many people said that the fact that over 70% of Sanibel Island is in conservation did lessen the impacts of Hurricane Ian, despite how much damage was done. It, it could have been worse is a narrative yeah, that we absolutely. keep hearing. Matt, uh, do you think Hurricane Ian has changed any recent perceptions or conversations related to Everglades restoration and advocacy? I don't think it's changed any perceptions necessarily, but what I think it's done is really driven home the importance of Everglades restoration, especially here in Southwest Florida where we sit on Sanibel and Captiva. There are a lot of knock-on effects from the hurricane that we're just now starting to experience. Um, apart from the immediate devastation that we went through, what we're looking at now is a situation where we're in the wet season. The lake uh, height at Lake Okeechobee is significantly elevated from where we'd like it to be. There are massive blue-green algae blooms that are taking up 90% of the lake, 90-plus percent of the lake, which is a really horrifying situation. And what will come of that, if nothing else is done, is that we will get damaging releases down the Caloosahatchee. At some point, the lake will be managed for flood control. And when it gets to a certain height, there's no other option except getting that lake down because it becomes a risk to the cities that are around that southern edge of the lake. If that happens, whether or not there is an algae bloom present in the lake, it will be transported down uh, the rivers to the northern estuaries, the St. Lucie and the Caloosahatchee, and we'll get all the knock-on effects of those toxic blue-green algae blooms. The flip side of that is once Everglades restoration is completed, we'll have another outlet for some of that water. We'll be able to put that water south, we'll be able to clean it and restore those flows to the Everglades, which takes a huge amount of pressure off of the Caloosahatchee. The end goal of Everglades restoration for the Caloosahatchee in Southwest Florida specifically is to limit the amount of flows we get to only the beneficial necessary flows during the dry season to protect our estuary and the health of the organisms within that estuary. So I think now when we're seeing um, the Army Corps and the water management districts are in such a difficult spot with their management decisions. And it's really because this one great option for putting water in a place is not available to them yet because Everglades restoration has not been completed. And just to make sure I understand, so Lake Okeechobee, this giant lake in the center of Florida, there are three possible places we can send that water when the lake is too high, and that would be the Caloosahatchee, 
estuary, which is uh, flows west uh, over here to us, and then there's the St. Lucie estuary, which flows east, and then the Everglades, which is not an option because sending the water uh, right now, it's too polluted. We legally can't use that option. There is a fourth place the water can go, and that's into the agriculture area. Um, They could hold water in the canals that are around there. They could hold water on land. We've seen people doing that. Farming water, it's called, where you just hold water in a farm field. Um, but that's not an option that's being utilized because any water taken by the agriculture area has to be voluntarily taken and they don't want it. Okay. Thank you for breaking that down. Carrie, how does coastal resilience connect to these water quality issues? Yeah. So I, I think about that in a couple different ways. Um, one, I'll make some connections to what Matt was just talking about. He was sort of painting that picture of some of the balance with Lake Okeechobee flows and, and some of the things we have to worry about, which is thinking about, for instance, algal blooms. And so from a climate change perspective, um, the warming waters can really impact the instance of those, the occurrences of those algal blooms, things like maybe the timing of when they occur, the size of those blooms, maybe how long they persist. Um, climate change can, of course, you know, we've talked already a lot about um, those flooding issues, but if you think about flooding issues, you're also, um, you know, introducing a lot more water to landscapes where you can then introduce pollutants and nutrients into the surrounding waters, and so that certainly could become a more pressing issue in the future. Um, But I also want to talk about it in the context of these natural systems and kind of bring it back again to the fact that I think there's sort of, (laughs) I talk a lot about flip sides of the coins because there's multiple ways to think about this, but um, first of all, I think we can think about the fact that these natural systems that I talked about that give us lots of storm protection and benefits like that have these co-benefits and they do other things for us and one of those is a lot of these systems help with our water quality. Um, you know, like mangroves, they really help with our water quality and vegetation is really important for that. But also, if we provide these natural systems with better water quality, they're also able to thrive and provide us with those services as well. So I think there's really important intimate connections between coastal resilience and water quality. And I think it's important too, when we're talking about water quality and natural systems, to understand exactly what that water is doing, apart from the drinking water source and where that water is going. Because if we think about the Everglades as what it was before we impacted it, it was essentially a hundred mile long filter that ran from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay. And as that water slowly made its way through the sawgrass and finally was deposited into Florida Bay, cleaner than it had been when it left, that clean water allowed Florida Bay to become the breeding ground for a lot of the fisheries that we rely on in South Florida for our tourism-based economies. That clean water allowed seagrass to thrive, which then gave um, juvenile fish a place to grow up. There's this really intricate system of ecosystems where small fish grow up in the mangroves, the proper roots provide them protection, then they can move to the seagrass beds where they grow a little further, and then beyond that they're able to move out to the reef or into the pelagic zone. Um, And a lot of these fish are really, really important. They're the reason people come to South Florida, whether it's for fishing or diving or any of the other tourism-based industries that we have down here, and that all starts with clean water that's coming out of the Everglades. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That really ties 
that really helps us think about the whole system in this really large-scale context of how everything's connected to each other. So I think that, that was a really great explanation. Yeah, it's a positive feedback loop, you know, healthy yeah. plants, healthy water, <laughs> yeah. healthy wildlife, all the way up the food chain, and it benefits us as well. So Matt and Carrie, uh, both of you, Carrie, maybe you can start. What has SCCF been doing to support Everglades restoration and coastal resilience of our region? Okay, so I'll start to talk a little bit more broadly about coastal resilience, then I'll hand the Everglades torch to Matt. Um, but really the way that I think about what I do at SCCF and what we do around coastal resilience is really focused on sort of what I describe as four pillars. And so uh, the first pillar would be sort of supporting adaptation planning. And that's also advocating for the adoption of these nature-based features. Um, so for example, um, we help assist uh, Captiva in a lot of their planning uh, for where they're sort of headed on the bay side, protecting themselves against sea level rise and flooding issues. Um, I also look into things like helping to support research projects around mangrove and grants around mangrove restoration, living shorelines, things like that. Um, under the second pillar would be policy. So um, I am part of the policy team <laughs> and work with Matt closely. Um, so that's things like monitoring planning, legislation, and other actions at multiple levels across the state. Then we've got the mitigation side. So um, SCCF was the co-founder of a renewable energy working group that we work hard on. And then I think about education and outreach is so essential. Um, you know, again, I talked about the fact that this is an issue that is not going away. And so creating a sustained conversation about this into the future is, is just so key. It's just really key for our region. I think that's dead on and we're doing our best to keep that conversation going um, through things such as podcasts but as well as outreach into the into the community engaging with people and making them understand that the Everglades is not just a South Florida issue it's not just a Florida issue but it's America's Everglades and it's a benefit to the country to protect it so we are helping people understand that but also we are fighting for funding, that's one of the major issues that's holding us up right now is we need this continual ask for funding from both the state and the, the federal government. Um, it is an easier ask than some of the other funding projects that are necessary because it is a 50-50 match, which is pretty unique for Army Corps projects. Most of the time the Army Corps pays a lot more of it, so it's a really good deal for the federal government to be paying for this pro uh, to these projects that are restoring the damage that really the Army Corps did a lot of in the first place when they were removing um, the water from the land. Uh, that being said, it's also a great return on investment. You get about $8 back for every $1 spent on Everglades restoration. Um, the flip side of that coin is it is the largest restoration project for the environment in the world. It is seemingly unending to a lot of people who keep seeing us and our partners come back to their offices in Tallahassee or back to their offices in DC and say, hey, we're back and we need more funding for the Everglades again. Um, but the good news is we've got momentum, we've had funding, and a lot of these projects are starting to come online and we're already starting to see the benefits of a lot of these restoration projects. So I think SCCF is doing a great job of engaging with these issues, building support, and making sure that our leaders understand that 
not only is this something that's right to do, it's something we need to do if we want to have a Florida to live in in the future. Absolutely. And just so I understand the $1, $8, um, is the $8 in tourism? Um, it's a combination of everything. So that's tourism coming in. That's water filtration for Miami. If we lose the Everglades and start needing to filter our own water to provide drinking water sources, that's going to rack up costs so fast. So if you take all of the benefits in aggregate, it's about an eight to one return on investment. That's incredible. Yeah, and at SCCF, as Matt said, we're always advocating for our coastal ecosystems and the Everglades. And yes, even though it's Everglades still need restored, but they're not going to restore themselves. So that's why we have our experts here working on it every day. So lastly, to close out, what can community members, just an average citizen, do to support coastal resilience or the Everglades and clean water? So I'll give a couple ideas that I feel probably have broader application too among some of these other pieces. Um, But the first is I would suggest that um, people should really just try and be a champion for nature, which means, you know, whatever we can do to help our local systems drive into the future, whether it's supporting the nonprofits that do that kind of work uh, to sort of um, demand that in the public sphere that those things happen, Um, You know, we really want to help those local systems thrive um, and also really acknowledge their significant ability to protect us and to provide those other co-benefits which relate to the idea of, of, um, you know, water quality and those other pieces. And, and, you know, again, like I had said, the Everglades really is one of our ultimate nature-based solutions, so that fits really squarely into that. Um, The other thing is just being really engaged and involved um, wherever you see the opportunity. So... Um, That might be seeing what your community is doing around um, both protecting nature but around the resilience piece, whether they're thinking about how they rebuild or how they incorporate these nature-based solutions. Um, So that could be at a community level, that could be at the municipal level. Um, I'll give you an example for Sanibel and Captiva, is that we recently started a citizen-based group called the Sandcap Citizens for a Resilient Future. We have some working groups where people are focusing on things like rebuilding practices, uh, the natural environment and landscaping. So that's a really good example where people can be incredibly engaged and involved. Yeah, I think those are all great things to do. I think also it comes back to that education pillar. Um, For most people, education, outreach, and having that conversation continue is one of the most effective things that we can be doing in our communities to ensure that people are actually thinking about these things and talking about these things. Because as you said, if we don't make decisions about this, the decisions are going to be made for us. So... It's really important that people are educating themselves so that they can talk and understand what the conversation is actually happening. And then also talk to your local leaders. Talk to people who are making these decisions around you and ask them these questions. Ask them, are they thinking about these things? What are they doing about these things? What's the plan to fix our water quality? What's the plan to make us more resilient? And listen to their answers and make sure that all of us are working towards a more resilient future. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I also think about the fact that I've talked to a lot of local community members who have talked about how the conversation has evolved around issues like water quality and how um, there was a lot of banding together around that concept. 
And I see that sort of actively what needs to happen is starting to happen around coastal resilience. So I see we have now a sustained conversation about water quality, which is fantastic. And I see that same thing sort of starting to um, happen around coastal resilience. It's great. And we make it easy here at SCCF to um, advocate and speak to your local leaders. We have action alerts, which you can sign up for at sccf.org and subscribe to our other mailing list while you're at it. I would just add to spend time in nature and enjoy our coastal resources while they're here and while they're thriving. Go photograph a bird or go boating and, and you'll clearly see why we need to protect what we have here in Florida. It's really special. So thank you so much, Matt and Carrie, for spending some time today to explain how Florida's natural ecosystems are so important to helping us live in harmony and balance with the environment. Yeah, we're so, we're, we're so happy to join you today to talk about all this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Like what you hear and want to learn more about SCCF? As I said, visit sccf.org and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at sccf underscore swfl, which stands for Southwest Florida. Thank you.